to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelkydale. And I'm Chris Newens. Normally, Navkate Tamrat would be joining us, but she is off globetrotting. So this week, it's just the two of us. As always, we'll start out with This Week in Love, the segment that brings you up to date on what's current in the world of romance. Today, we'll be talking about a former French minister who's gotten up to some unexpected activities. Then it's time for The Love Story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today, we go back to Bernardo Bertolucci with the film The Dreamers, which it turns out was formative for both Chris and me in slightly different ways. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Marry, Fuck, Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters or entities from our main love story. Let's just say I don't think you're going to see this week's choices coming. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. This is more this week in sex than it is this week in love. Okay. But we often conflate the two on this show, so why stop now? Do you know who Marlena Schiappa is? No, I do not. She is the former minister delegate in charge of citizenship and the secretary of state for gender equality under Macron. Oh. Yeah, and under two separate, uh, his first two prime ministers there. So she's a feminist author who has published what Wikipedia referred to as 28 essays and books. Her books include Letters to My Uterus, and who are the rapists? Chiappa is all over the French news right now because she has posed for Playboy. Yeah, I'm, I can't believe that Playboy is still going. Well, that's a big thing. So it's French Playboy, which they don't produce a monthly magazine. They produce what they call a MOOC, a 300-page book slash magazine that's quarterly. So this is the April through June issue. Now, I will say as well that Madame Chiappa is not nude. She is wearing a low-cut white bodysuit in some reports, but I've also seen this categorized as a robe moulante, which just means a tight dress. So in either case, it's low-cut. Uh, nobody's seen it yet. It comes, it hits stands April 8th, which is after this recording. I will be rushing out, though. <laughs> I, this, is, this is your sweet spot, right? <laughs> <laughs> Porn of French ministers. <laughs> Who doesn't want it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be you know, French ministers, English ministers. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> Isn't there something called like yes, Mister Minister or something? Yes, uh, yes, Minister. Yes, Minister. Yeah, that to me has always just been porn. I don't know what it actually is. <laughs> yes, yes, Minister. <laughs> Rachel, you're going to be very disappointed if you watch Yes, Minister. I'll never watch it. The The scenes in my head are just far better. <laughs> I'm going to ask Rachel to close her ears here. Yes, Minister is a very, is, is a very staid British sitcom about the government in the 1970s, <laughs> mainly about civil servants. Here's the trade-off, is she is 
like a huge advocate for women's rights, for LGBTQ rights, and all of this. And she got a 12-page spread interview to discuss these issues. Okay, uh, for the people who read Playboy for the articles, presumably. <laughs> Which I did have a college... Which is all of us. <laughs> now, two, two points on this. I did have a college roommate who had a subscription to Playboy that she said was literally for the articles, and... I kind of believed her. And uh, didn't like Hunter S. Thompson used to write for Playboy? That's it. They actually, and according to my father, they also had a great fiction section back in the day. That's not a joke. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I believe it. Like, I mean, I've never read an article of it, a, 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 an edition of it. I've never even seen one. I don't know if they're even kind of like sold in British. Is it a magazine? Does it have ladies in it? <laughs> I know it's something to do with rabbits, right? Like so uh, there's been a lot of reaction to this from various people in the government. The Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, called her over the weekend to say, according to sources close to the Prime Minister, that her photo shoot and Playboy interview were not at all appropriate, all the more so in the current climate. Just so everybody knows, Paris is on fire, so... Oh, I see. That that, that climate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There have been protests over the past few weeks about uh, Macron attempting to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 and getting it through Parliament with a questionable system that allows him to bypass voting procedures. And Chris, man on the street, what have the effects of this been on day-to-day life? On day-to-day life? Very little. I mean, I happen to live in an arrondissement because it's, I mean, the protests are also, there's been a big strike among uh, all of the garbage men. So we've also had uh, like trash piling up on uh, like street corners and stuff, but only in certain arrondissements. And I happen to live in one of the arrondissements where they haven't been on strike. So, I, you know, and, and it's it's an interesting thing like if if you don't go seeking out the manifestations or anything like that, then they're they're called protests in English, but that was a nice try on Chris's part to <laughs> to forget. Yes, yeah, they are the manif here. Yeah, yeah. If you don't go seeking them out, like you can live an entire. You would never know that they were happening, basically, unless you happen to live in an arrondissement where um, there's kind of like rubbish piling up on the street, but even that's been cleared away in most places now. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, far-left candidate, what do you think his reaction was, if he had to guess? I, I imagine he was all for it, right? He was like, um, more sexy ministers posing for Playboy. That sounds like a, a thick, you know, proper Mélenchon, man of the people reaction, right? No, he instead, he tweeted, France is going off the rails, citing both <laughs> this event and the fact that Macron did an interview with a children's magazine called Pif Gadget. Now, uh, let's see. Pif Gadget. Pif, Pif Gadget. Uh, <laughs> Sandrine Rousseau, who's a member of parliament from the Green Party, uh, said that women's bodies should be able to be exposed anywhere. I don't have a problem with that, but there's a social context. Now, do you know the Minister of the Interior, Gerard Darmanin? I, let's, I don't know. He, he's, he's about the same level of right wing as Macron, which is to say a little bit and far more than a lot of people that we know would like. But uh, he said, I want to say that Marlene Schiappa is a courageous female politician, which is a nice modifier there, uh, who has character and who has her style, which is not mine, but which I respect. 
You mean he wouldn't wear a, what was it, like a kind of plunging, low-cut white jumpsuit? Right, right. He is... Yeah. Uh, it's not his style. Yeah, he's anti-playboy. He's anti... Anti-cleavage. I was trying to do a, a Phoebe Waller-Bridge call with a jumpsuit, but I, c- I couldn't get there. Anti-cleavage being a political position. <laughs> right, right. Now, the editor-in-chief of French Playboy, who has the very sexy name of Jean-Christophe Laurentin, and nobody send me pictures, I don't want to know what he actually looks like, he has said that she is the most Playboy-compatible uh, government minister because of her stance on women's issue. Oh, I see. He has said she has understood that Playboy is not a magazine for old machos, but could be an instrument for the feminist cause, which was actually the the whole series of jokes that first occurred to me when I read this, which is just thinking about, you know, some... Because, A, who's buying porn magazines, like, in hard copies now? People who don't know about the internet or are worried about using it. So I'm saying... The hipsters, I guess. No, I'm thinking, yeah, it's 60-plus or, like... Hipsters are collecting, first of all, there are no more hipsters, but (laughs) (laughs) hipsters would collect like vintage porn, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking this is like the sixth. Only get off on things which nobody else has ever got off on. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I I don't know. But I really, I really do love the idea of some 60 year old man being like, ooh, who's this sexy lady in this plunging? What's, what's this article? Oh, women are people. Oh my God. <laughs> and he's converted. We, another feminist has been born. <laughs> he, yeah, the editor continued by saying that it is a, not a pornography magazine, but as I said, a 300 page book magazine hybrid, quote, that is intellectual and on trend, as things that are on trend are often labeled and Albeit with a few undressed women. (laughs) (laughs) On trend, albeit with a few undressed women. (laughs) And then Schiappa, just in uh, response to all of this, has tweeted, which you'll understand as soon as you hear the syntax, defending the right of women to have control of their bodies, that's everywhere and all the time. In France, women are free, with all due respect to the detractors and hypocrites. Which doesn't sound to me very like she respects them at all, but that's just my take. <laughs> so uh, what do we think about this? Is this a good forum for her to spread her message? Look, honestly, like what Playboy is now is not what it used to be. Even in people's, even in, in the kind of popular imagination, I, like, I, I, I can't really believe that they've somehow managed to keep going just in general. Well, in the US, they keep going back and forth now between online and like quarterly or semi-annual because it isn't profitable to do. Yeah, and it, it kind of makes sense. The, I mean, if, if, if I were um, running the marketing department of Playboy, then I would definitely uh, suggest the, the kind of quarterly thing because it has this like iconic status of something that is no longer actually being consumed, but yeah, exists more in people's heads as like an idea. Everybody knows what Playboy is, even if they haven't actually ever read an issue. And they do, I think that the people who are in that category do know that it is well known for its articles and that there is a sort of like a serious side of it. Right. I, yeah, I, 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 I was going to tease you for saying you for using the verb read. You were going through the <laughs> magazine, but it's true, and it, it's it's never been hardcore like Hustler or anything like that. It's always been known as softcore, with then like yeah, the famous writers thrown in. So something that I would say, which is interesting about Playboy, though, is that they 
like I wouldn't feel that there's a huge amount of irony attached to it actually that weirdly it has this like erotic glamour in in my head so no like when somebody goes to pose for Playboy, they're not posing for Playboy in a sort of like a statement against Playboy or against that kind of magazine. And it hasn't turned against itself in that way. Right. And so one of the things that you have to think about um, this uh, politician doing this is that there is a sort of, there's an earnestness within it. right? Right. So that being said, so it has to be taken like absolute like face value for what it is. She's literally kind of, I mean, it's it's not a kind of, it's not a full frontal naked shoot. That's it. Honestly, if, you know, a huge publication where we're like, hey, will you wear this low cut dress mm. on the cover and we'll promote whatever you want in a 12 page interview. Yeah. Guess what? I'm talking about my books for 12 pages and I'm going to look freaking amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... So <laughs> this is a um, it's an interesting question here as to kind of like how low cut is the dress? Oh, I can show you a picture. Oh, we can see the pictures of it. Yeah. Okay. Link in show notes. Because, I mean, I say that because, I mean, there's such a thing as a kind of like a low cut dress which someone could wear out. And then there's also someone wearing a low cut dress on the pages of Playboy, which I would I could imagine is sort of all of the boob apart from the nipple showing. <laughs> um and it's we're somewhere in between we're somewhere in between all right okay that's no i mean someone could wear that out maybe they wouldn't necessarily do that in it right and they wouldn't have 49.3 which is the name of the law that uh you know jesus i thought that was just a tattoo that's that that completely um hold it can i have can i see that again okay so Right. So describe okay. this picture for us, Chris, for our listeners. <laughs> um, the one on the left or the one on the right? You know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, there is a um, there is a woman. Right. She... Do the alt text, the alt text version, Chris. No, no value judgments. The word, the word "playboy" is written over her head. Uh, she's wearing a white low cut. Dress or swimsuit, actually, I would say. No, Chris Chris doesn't know what a bodysuit is. It's either a bodysuit or a dress. <laughs> okay. She's wearing a white low-cut bodysuit with her legs. She's sitting on a, a, a kind of like a, a white leather stool, I think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I really need to care about the material that the stool is made of. The point is, is that her, her legs are entirely splayed. And for me, the point is that Chris is actually subconsciously mimicking this with his own body language. And that's not even a joke. We're laughing because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm doing now. I'm even leaning forward. This was my goal all along, <laughs> to get Chris to replicate the photo. Um, her legs are entirely splayed while her arms are in between her legs pushing down on that nice white leather stool um and also the the top of her arms are pushing her cleavage together which is um out for all the world to see and on the cleavage is written on one of her breasts is 49.3 which is the it's the legal statute that allowed macron to push the retirement age thing through the parliament Breaking news, however, we have just looked up this photograph and apparently there are places that are saying that it is a hoax, that this came out of Bangladesh for some reason, and uh, that 
it's not the actual cover. So as of today of recording, this is not yet hit newsstands, but it will be out on the 8th. And if it's not too expensive to buy a 300 page pornographic book slash magazine, I wouldn't know. I've never bought one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should. They're great. <laughs> I will buy one on April 8th and, uh, see exactly what we have and we will i'll put a photo in the show notes yeah but but you you basically you heard me being duped in real time by this uh you know (laughs) fake news item she didn't have that written uh on her breasts my oh my only goal in life is to gaslight chris he thinks this is actually a podcast i just keep this for myself (laughs) (laughs) what (laughs) Um, send it to you every week so you think it's uh, hold up. So, um, but to to get onto just the actual issue of it, though, which is literally, like, is it okay for a politician to pose in uh, sexy clothes and then write an article about the the serious things that she wants to say? I think that it's absolutely fine. I mean, like, basically because politicians do particularly in the current age, and I think probably forever really, have been doing whatever they can to get their message out there. And this is another way of getting the message out there and building a public brand and stuff like that. I mean, so I I have no particular issue with her doing this if she wants to. I don't think it delegitimates the office or anything like that. I guess the question that I would throw into that is, would your opinion change like in a time of crisis, which this certainly is for Macron's government. She's no longer part of Macron's government, but that's been very recent, say within the last year, I believe. Well, no, I mean, it it doesn't change. I think what's interesting, though, is that whenever it's a politician doing anything, anybody who disagrees with their politics is going to come out and you, you know, you have this, obviously, it is something that people could be outraged by. But I don't think they're really being outraged by the fact that she's doing it, or even in the time of crisis, so much as disagreeing with the government in which she is like involved with. Yeah, I think that could be a different point if she were actually nude. Again, people are less, do have very different opinions on that here than in the States for women generally. Even if she was nude, if there were a load of people who agreed with her political position and were really on her side, then I don't think it would be an issue at all. And I think that it's being, you know, when you say that Jean-Luc Mélenchon is sort of like, you know, calling her out, I imagine that if it was like somebody in Mélenchon's party who was doing it, he probably wouldn't have an issue with it. And I think it's an interesting thing as to kind of like how our morality around certain things is you know, influenced by other things that we want to like use that morality for. Yeah, I, I, okay, so I, I can see the argument, but I also think at the same time that, uh, say that it also depends on the party. So Mélenchon, sure. I don't think you're gonna get what's her name, super racist lady, Le Pen. Like, <laughs> le, you know. it's a superhero name. No one, no. Wait, hold on. <laughs> you're saying Le Pen is super racist lady? <laughs> Seen behind the mask. I I don't see her, you know, standing up for anybody in her party who's posing nude. Probably not. I I I I don't know. I wouldn't put it past her. I mean, like posing nude is one thing, but like I think in that same situation in which it's a sort of like a, a relatively respectful 
sexy photo shoot, which is an interesting <laughs> turn of phrase. But, you know, I mean, where they're not actually posing nude. And I think that the Front National uh, or Rassemblement National... Uh, no, it's now known as Super Racist Party. Super Racist yeah, Party. Yeah, right. Yeah, would... Yeah, I think that they could easily get behind that kind of thing if it served them politically. And so, Yeah, I just don't think it would, given their base. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, you never know. I mean, all right. I mean, in which case, though, nevertheless, the point stands that it's an interesting thing. When it comes to politics, it's almost impossible to take an objective moral line which is not influenced by these, like, external factors of expediency for the yeah. people who uh, want to talk about it. That's a great point. And it's also a great point to point out that this is what happens when Nafkote isn't here, that instead of discussing celebrity culture and <laughs> Playboy, we devolve into debates about French politics <laughs> and what's politically expedient. Uh, just to finally wrap up here, I would like to point out something that has been one of Schiappa's great political accomplishments to take the focus off her body for just a second and onto her work, which is that she is the one who passed the legislation regarding catcalling a few years ago, uh, in which men catcalling on the street, well, anybody really, but I've never seen a woman catcall in New York, London, or Paris. In which case, I mean, I, so I didn't know that. In which case the the, the photos become an interesting dialogue with that as an idea as well. It's about kind of like reclaiming the right to be sexy on your own terms. Yeah. And I think it's, it yeah, it, it's far more interesting than just being a gratuitous, like, you know, here's my cleavage and please vote for me. But rather is sort of saying like, I am still allowed to be like this, yeah. but you know, you're not allowed to kind of like heckle in response. And I think so I've reevaluated my opinion, and I think that I think that what she's doing is a, a really kind of like strong. I mean, th there are probably other things that I don't know, and I will reevaluate my opinion again if I hear them. But like, I think that yeah, that in which case, based on that piece of information, this is a really interesting act and I think should absolutely be celebrated. I'm so glad to introduce like fallacious and late information to Chris. <laughs> I am clearly the worst one of us to be doing these uh, these things, but look at all these twists and surprises. And now it's time for the love story. This week we're going to be talking about Bernardo Bertolucci yet again. This time is 2003 film The Dreamers. Yep, that's right. Bertolucci's back. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, before we get into this at all, I'm just going to ask the usual question, um, this time just to Rachel, and then also to me a little bit. Um, what is your relationship with this film? When was the first time you watched it? And um, so on and so forth. So... I thought that I'd seen it when it first came out, but I don't remember exactly. <laughs> okay, I mean, and do you remember what your reaction to it was? Like? Oh, I loved it. I, I absolutely loved it. We'll talk about why, I'm sure, you know, throughout. And, you know, but uh, yeah, I loved it. It remains, to this day, one of my favorite films. I mean, if you were to give it a percentage rating of reasons that you moved to Paris, where would you put the dreamers? <laughs> In terms of studying abroad here, 98%. <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, 
I, I was, I mean, I assume there are a number of reasons that you moved here. So I was expecting like a kind of a steady 8% or something, but 98%. Well, and I'll tell you what, I came here in 2006. To, so my original Paris experience was not unlike the characters <laughs> in the, the Dreamers, except with uh, the sex I had was a lot more boring. I do have to say that. <laughs> no twins were involved. <laughs> uh. And yours? My my dad has uh, always been a fan of um, you know French French films, and um, I remember I think that uh, he would have gone to see uh, the Dreamers uh, at the cinema, and so my first knowledge of it as a film was him coming back from the cinema and saying, "There's this movie with and the, and the woman has amazing breasts." She does have amazing breasts. Uh, I w- I was expecting a. Slightly better punchline is, and he came back from the city, cinema, disappeared into his bedroom for ten minutes. <laughs> so I, so yeah, I, I found out, I found out about it then, and then I would have watched it, I guess, a number of years later when I was at university. I mean, I, I guess I liked it, but I think that um, I watched it with friends, and I think there was a sort of like a real cynicism, even when we were uh, nineteen years old, and like the idea of like watching just a kind of a French art house movie with my friends at university. And there was a lot of calling out on how pretentious this film was like right from the off, which is interesting because I think actually the whole point of it is that it's like the characters in it are being pretentious. We had very different university experiences, but then I did go to a school that is famously known for its pretension. So (laughs) what can I say? That's just my Marxist Freudian reading of your reaction to. Yeah, we, we, we were just, we were scared, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, so there was that. I mean, but this being said, even, you know, against this um, wall of cynicism that I got from my friends, there's definitely, I think, something which is like super romantic about this movie and, and, and highly romanticizing of the idea of, of Paris. In the it it yeah it's... yes and no but this relates to points you made earlier about interiors and exteriors so mm. we'll get there yeah yeah I but I think as a kind of like more so than <laughs> I mean amazingly more so than Amelie say this this movie paints a certainly as a like a young guy you're like when you you arrive in Paris and you're like okay where are the twins. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've heard that everybody who comes here <laughs> gets a pair. <laughs> um, and you know what? It is true that like... Uh, did, uh, by the twins, do you mean uh, the brother and sister? Or do you mean Ava <laughs> Green's breasts? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. But it is, and, and it's funny. I mean, like when I did first arrive in Paris and I definitely, I met like some French people and I don't think they were brother and sister but I, I certainly they had this sort of vibe to them and I was like oh wow like you know and I, I was we were all hanging out together and I was like, oh I'm in the I'm in the dreamers um and then we went back to their apartment and we drank some wine and and then and, and then nothing happened <laughs> and I and I went home <laughs> and that was the end of the, the story so there are sort of like certain expectations, I think, that it, it does raise or it, it, it paints a romantic image of the city for which certainly like you feel that you could be pursuing and it might exist here somewhere. Then just to kind of like give a quick outline, as, as you know, the plot of the dreamers, 
um, such as it is, because it's not a it's not a plot heavy movie. Rachel, you know, stop me if you think that I'm leaving out anything, because as I say, I don't feel it's very plot heavy, so there's not that much to say. But if you think if you've seen something in it which um, you think is essential for the reading of it, then do tell me. I think it's got that uh, Bertolucci charm, and that uh, you, you're just like, yeah, it's uh, hot people fucking in Paris, and uh, <laughs> that's it. Do you need a plot? You need more plot than that. <laughs> How greedy can you get? The story, basically, it revolves around Matthew, played by Michael Pitt, who is, he looks like a kind of a cross between a young Brando and a young Leonardo DiCaprio. Or like my French tutor, Jonathan, if you knew him. Yes. So anyway, so Matthew um, is an American exchange student in Paris um, who gets involved with these um, very sexy French twins. (laughs) Dio and Isabel, who are played by, I actually haven't known, who's Dio played by? Louis Garel. <laughs> I think Chris is just quizzing me at this point. Yeah, that's right. I'm just uh, making sure that you're paying attention. I want to know that I knew, yeah. Uh, Dio and Isabel, who is played by Eva Green. Yeah, he meets these these twins. They are protesting the firing of Henri Langlois um, as the director of the Cinémathèque Française. Um, right, which is a huge institution here for cinema fans, which comprise a much, much larger portion of the population than in the States. Yeah, and I think particularly at that time as well, when cinema was just on this like crazy rise, and I mean, <clears throat> it was being heralded as an entirely new art form and being taken incredibly seriously in France as well. But also we're talking about the time period in which the movie set, not in which it was filmed. So we're talking about 68, not 2003. Yes, yeah, that's right. 2003, the famous cultural revolution. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, they, they meet where they're, you know, they're at these protests. Like, apparently, Henri Langlois, uh, he got uh, fired because he was just a bit, he was quite belligerent, apparently, and he really wanted to, he's a huge figure in the history of cinema, but he was very strict about doing things his own way, and he's fired by the French government because they didn't like that. But He's a real figure, and I actually had a course uh in my film studies degree, which has now been well established at the Cinematheque about the archives there. And my professor would get out these boxes and he said, you know why the Cinematheque has this Italian directors and this, you know, this person's and this person, it's not French and you wouldn't think that they Mm. have it. And, you know, everybody's suggesting these, you know, political reasons and, you know, the idea of French as a cultural capital. And he goes, no, it was because of this guy and how good he was at seducing widows. Wow. <laughs> so, so that's some story. So yeah, there you go. History is uh, made by the people who turn up and those who are good at seducing widows. I, I was not aware of this before I started doing the research uh, for this, but the actually the firing of Henri Langlois is one of the like um, many sparks which led to the May '68 riots overall. So it is. Like a very small part, but yes. I mean, I think it's, yeah, it, it's emphasised a little bit more in the film than perhaps it was. I mean, the way that it's depicted in The Dreamers is that this is the spark that lit the flame. Well, the the film is about cinephilia, so of course yeah. it is, yeah. So Matthew has met these uh, met these two twins at this protest, um, and they bond over their, their just absolute love of movies. 
Uh, and this leads to Matthew being invited back to Isabel and Theo's apartment for dinner with their parents, um, uh, who are a, a French and English couple, and the dad is a poet. And the mother is played by the woman who plays Duckface in Four Weddings and a Funeral. There's there's a little bit of kind of like awkwardness, including what I remember, you know, from the first time that I watched it. It's like a very pretentious scene where the the dad, who's a poet, is sort of going off about kind of like some philosophy. And uh, he notices that uh, Matthew, Michael Pitt's character, is not really paying attention. And he's like, uh, hold on, why, why are you not paying attention? And and And... Matthew sort of like he's fidgeting with his lighter and he's like oh, I, I just realized that this lighter it, it just fits exactly here on this pattern in the tablecloth and then and, and wait no and, and then it fits over here in this uh the, the size of this fork and he goes around I just realized I had a conversation with another friend in front of Chris the other day in which we talked about pattern recognition as a sign of intelligence <laughs> and Chris called it a circle jerk but <laughs> Now I'm thinking Bertolucci incepted me when I had my young plastic brain and taught me this. What do you think of that scene, though, where he's doing that? Because I've always thought, like, oh, God. you know, and the dad seems sort of, like, so impressed by the fact that he's... I'm going to give you the absolute most pretentious answer to this, which yeah. is the father represents the French the French philosophical uh, movement at that period, and Michael Pitt represents the, sorry, and the Matthew character represents the uh, Americans. So French filmmaking, French culture is coming at art making from a very, like, f- like start with the philosophy and go from there, which leaves you kind of cold, particularly when you're young and, you know, want to be inflamed. And somebody else, the young Americans are approaching it from an aesthetic point of view and going, look at this pattern, look at this, look at, you know, look at the way things look, not the way that, you know, you, you don't have to extrapolate to the intellectual. And uh, it's shown as this juxtaposition that's very appealing to the young French, but that the old French think is reductive and rather rude. Well, I mean, that that's great. Um, it's completely revolutionary. You, you've heard me uh, having my mind changed in real time there. <laughs> Um, it's not pretentious. To, I mean, maybe it depends on what your definition of pretension is. I suppose well, it cost me two hundred grand to get that uh, <laughs> to get that thought. Um, so anyway, I mean, they have this this conversation where you know the dinner goes kind of okay, um, but you know the parents are maybe a little bit iffy about Matthew, or they're kind of like wanting to accept him. But anyway, it doesn't matter really because they're going off to Trouville on the French coast. And they're leaving Theo and Isabel their enormous apartment uh, just to have all by themselves. Which is, this is just my absolute peak aesthetic, which it appears to be Bertolucci's as well, which is just <laughs> like uh, like a, a once grand apartment mm. that, like when the parents are there, it starts off as kind of like an intellectual's worn down at the edges, this and that. And it definitely devolves over time. Uh-huh. But it's an enormous uh, rambling apartment, which is it, it's quite kind of classic of these French apartments with long corridors and like annex rooms. Do you know, I, like, because I, I don't know, and I, so whenever I watch a movie set in Paris, I'm always, I mean, I'm insufferable in this. I'm always saying, wow, wh- where's that? Where's that? I think I know where that place is, but I wasn't sure what, which arrondissement or where the apartment is supposed to be. And I don't know if you know that or like... Oh, I think that's actually very deliberate because it's a it's an imaginary Paris, you know, that this is set in. 
Isabel and Theo have the apartment now to themselves and they say to Matthew, who they um, have really got to like, hey, why don't you come and spend the month at our apartment? Because currently he's living in some like crappy uh, student hotel uh, in just a kind of like a one room studio. And obviously... And he... studio's a big name for it. It's like a yeah. real matchbox. It's like a bed sit even. Yeah. And obviously he, he leaps at the chance. Well, he, he yeah, he's sort of like, oh, why would <laughs> why would you want me to come here? Eventually he says, yeah, that sounds, that sounds like a great idea. And so he stays the night and, you know, hilarity ensues. Um... <laughs> and by hilarity, we mean... The sexiest, weirdest scenes of your life. So very quickly, uh, Matthew starts to get the handle that uh, Isabel and Theo are a little bit more than just brother and sister. The first thing that he sees is that they're sharing a bed um, and they're both naked with one another. And then the next morning, he goes to the goes to the same bathroom where uh, Theo is showering naked while. Um, uh, while well, Isabel's brushing her teeth and and anyway and then you know things kind of ratchet up a little bit and they start playing these games of cinema trivia with one another um in which one will ask the other a question about yeah something in um, classic cinema and if they can't get the answer right then they have to do uh, a forfeit uh, and these forfeits are not like you know run around the block with your underpants on your head um, the first one in the film is when Theo gets a question wrong and he is asked by Isabel to masturbate onto a picture of Marlena Dietrich. And if I remember right, isn't she kind of teasing him with a mop during that? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I believe it's a feather duster. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, <laughs> How French, though? It's so French. It's. I mean, it's also a really kind of like overblown masturbation scene in which Theo is grunting a lot. Um, Okay, but if you're masturbating, somebody's still tickling with you with the feather, feather duster. Are you not making some noise? I'd probably be giggling. <laughs> um. <laughs> My, I have theories on giggling during sex, but uh, we still haven't finished the summary, so you go ahead. <laughs> um, as I say, things ratchet up a little bit further in which um, Isabel gets a question wrong in the in the movie trivia quiz. And uh, her forfeit is to have sex with Matthew. Uh, to begin with, Matthew can't quite believe it. He thinks that they're joking, um, but it turns out they're not joking. And so they do end up having sex in this apartment. In fact, on the kitchen floor, he has sex with Isabel, while Theo, who's watching to begin with, then decides to go and make some eggs in the background. It's important uh, thematically that uh, when this happens... Matthew's kind of like uh, not forced into it, but cajoled into it. And Theo kind of takes off, helps him take off his underwear. And uh, Matthew's got a big gold crush on Isabel, of course, because she's Ava Green and she's a goddess. And he's stolen a picture of her in a bathing suit and a bikini that uh, he then had to shove down his pants at some point for like a real reason, <laughs> not just not just for fun. <laughs> um, but uh, again, there there again, you get that like a uh, jerking off image etc. Um, I did feel that like someone having sex with Eva Green on the floor of a kitchen while somebody else makes uh, eggs in the background is one of the Frenchest scenes of like 21st century cinema, I think. It would only have been more French if the guy had been making an omelette, I feel, in the background. 
sort of nonchalantly just sort of there kind of like doing some cooking of um yeah and i do want to say so so she is losing her virginity in this scene there's some blood well hold on yeah so yeah that's no i'm yeah she she's losing her virginity as well like yeah yeah and um about six seconds in then starts to come and uh, I want to say for anybody out there who is thinking that this is how they'd be losing their virginity if they come to France it's not necessarily like that (laughs) (laughs) I mean there are so many questions about the like that she she does she's not given vibes of somebody who is losing her virginity at this stage in her life I feel absolutely not Um, and I feel like Bertolucci puts in the blood to be like I'm proving it, like the old-fashioned way. <laughs> she hasn't fucked her brother yet. <laughs> in the same way that people in certain movies, they'll like in a certain Victorian time, someone will cough onto a handkerchief and they'll be a spot of blood. And it's like, ah, oh, they're dead. They've got 30, 30 minutes tops. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Greta Garbo. <laughs> Here's a French film quiz. Not even French, but set in France. What film does Greta Garbo die of consumption? I have no idea. Forfeit. Go fuck somebody in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) Gonna be making some eggs. (laughs) It's Camille. Uh, yeah, this this it's, it's, this is not happening now. This is we're still sitting around just talking into the microphones. Um, after Matthew's like initial reluctance to uh, this lifestyle and kind of thinking, "Oh, this is this is pretty weird," he basically just sort of decides to to go for it. You know, as, as things start kind of ratcheting up and he starts, like, actually kind of, like, he enters into a... Ava uh, Green. Yeah. In, uh, Multiple times, actually. Yes. They, they, uh, Matthew and Ava Green, Matthew and Isabel begin a sexual relationship um, while the brother... In the, the, it's all, this is all taking place within the apartment. While outside, it's still kind of, like, made occasionally um, clear that the May 68 revolts a you know a, a building and this sort of still happening yeah him him and evergreen or matthew and isabel begin a relationship with uh the brother Theo, uh sort of like looking on and this apparently kind of continues for an entire month in which like the apartment becomes increasingly like squalid they run out of money which they've been left by their parents so they have to start kind of like raiding the bins in order to kind of cook more stuff and while this is going on, there's all this sort of sex and sort of slight jealousy from Theo. I mean, you might say more than slight jealousy. But uh, while this is going on, there's also a lot of play and they're constantly like acting out different scenes from the movies that they like, either that or, or different pieces of art that, that, that they like. This involves either kind of like dressing up or there's a famous scene in which they reenact another famous scene from a movie, um, from the movie Bande de Part. Uh, in which um, the characters run through the Louvre in uh, like nine minutes and 45 seconds. They run around all of the galleries in the Louvre um, and it's all this sort of glorious like play around the idea of film while also fucking constantly having this weird incestuous relationship and the beautiful apartment that they're living in descending into complete squalor. And it's such a strange thing in terms of just the timing of it, like with the Louvre scene in particular, because you're watching it in 2003 thinking you couldn't possibly know. There are guards, there are barriers, there's the, you know, I am paid triangle, pyramid, you know, there's all of this that would just prevent you from even attempting this. But at the time, they're also looking back, you know, 
know, in there trying to attempt it. Mm. But it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a weird framing. I know. I definitely thought, like, while I was watching, I was like, could I try that? I think, you know, I think they're, they're kind of like being tackled and stuff. I think it could be a fun thing to try still. There are guards in every room now, though. Yeah, but. Yeah, you run. I mean, how fast are they going to be? Or um, well, maybe this is just something that people are trying like every other week. And okay, like, I mean, go go ahead, try. I'll uh, I'll see you at the vestie. And... <laughs> mm. Just kidding. There's no prison there. <laughs> <laughs> to continue, like the 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 month is going on, um, and as I say, the revolution is building outside all the time while they're living this dreamy, so to speak, life. Yeah, I think the movie is really driven by the tension of what are they going to do when everything runs out, you know, because if they're, I think, halfway through the movie when Isabel starts, you know, scraping mold off bread and, you know, there's a, the, 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 you're going just, how are they going to get by? And what happens when the parents come home? Yeah. You know, I, I think what happens when the parents come home is the looming question. Well, this is an interesting thing, um, slightly, you know, in, in, because I do want to talk about as well kind of like how it compares to Last Tango in Paris. And similarly to that movie, I think that there are kind of like, there are beats of tension which are, if you looked at it from a distance and you'd be like, yeah, there is that tension of like, what are they going to do when the money runs out? What are they going to do when the parents come home? But as I was watching it, um, so and that's similar to the that lingering question of in Last Tango in Paris, is Marlon Brando a murderer? Maybe at least in the beginning of the movie. But while I was watching it, I wasn't thinking about any of this actual tension which is propelling the movie forward. For maybe, me. maybe you're a lot less afraid of your parents than I am of mine. <laughs> um, it does bring me nicely to the like to the end of the movie, which is that the parents... Points for not using climax. <laughs> <laughs> the parents do come home while... Isabel has built a fort in the middle of the opulent sitting room and they, yeah, they've all fallen asleep naked under the fort and the parents come home to this completely trashed apartment, their own completely trashed apartment. These parents who are like, you know, French intellectuals or French and English intellectuals and they walk in and they're obviously outraged and there's sort of like a... I'm not sure it's outraged so much as it's horrified. yeah. Yeah, they're, they're horrified. And there's, I, I think there's some really beautiful shots of like them trying to do a little bit of tidying up and stuff like that. Yeah, and the best that the mother can do is, is just leave a pile of bills on the mantle. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, a check. Oh, that's Sorry. right. That's right. Um, so they, 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 they tidy up a little bit. And they're walking through the, through the house and seeing it in this wreck. And then they come to see their twin children entirely naked with this American guy like in this fort all sleeping on top of one another and they don't really know what to do and then yeah the the dad goes off and just writes a check for the kids and leaves it on the side and then they leave the apartment on tiptoes so that the kids can just continue living this life uh, as they have been. Isabel Eva Green is the first one who wakes up and she sees the check there. There's nothing else which has moved in the apartment, but by seeing the check, she realizes that they have been seen in this, like, embraced by their parents. And earlier on in the movie, she has said that if her parents ever found out about this incestuous relationship 
with her brother that was going on that she would kill herself. And so she goes to start sort of trying to kill herself by she attaches a, a, a rubber pipe to the gas outlet and trails the rubber pipe under the um, under the, the fort that they've made. So, so she's really trying to kill them all. Yeah. And we hear the gas kind of like coming in. There are sort of a few clips from um, other like, you know, movies in the past in which you, but you're constantly hearing the gas. You're constantly having it kind of cut back to the three of them, the room being filled with gas. Um, yeah. And these images of people dying by suicide uh, from film history. And then, but before they can actually die, something actually comes winging in through the window and it's a brick thrown from the streets by a, a bunch of protesters who are shouting people out into the road, into the road. And this obviously wakes up all three of them. Um, Isabel hurries quickly to hide the fact that she's been trying to kill them all. As one would. Yeah, as, as you would. Um, and then they're like, oh, we should go out onto the streets and go and protest. Um, and so they all run out onto the streets. And Matthew, who throughout this time of the sort of gradual descent into squalor, has been asking a few questions, <laughs> um, not least about politics and the Maoism that... Deo particularly like is propagating and saying that we should all be Maoists and we should all carry little red books in our hands and we should fight in the street without actually doing any fighting on the street himself until this point. Matthew has an argument with Deo about like, no, this isn't the way we should we should be in the world of kind of like cinema and like art and stuff like that. This isn't we don't want to go into the world of violence and Deo doesn't listen to him. Uh and he runs off with Isabel uh and they begin throwing Molotov cocktails at the police in this big street side riot scene the police charge and effectively matthew is lost to the crowds you're matthew would you sign up for this experience in a heartbeat in fact <laughs> the, the least believable thing to me about this movie within the world of the movie is how much he hesitates at accepting their initial invitation because it is yeah, absolute glamour. Like, he doesn't have money. He thinks they have money. It's going to be easy. He's very attracted to Isabel. There's, I think the attraction to Theo is there from the beginning, but it's it's less readable, maybe. It's more dangerous at the time. He doesn't quite know what to do with it. But it's like, okay, the two hottest people you've ever met <laughs> have a huge amount of money and want you to come live with them and do nothing but play with them all day in every sense of the term. Could there be a better life for a 19-year-old? No, there could not. I will answer my own question. So you're not saying that, you know, you, you've really got the hots for Isabel or, you know, the um, object of desire of your choice, like the, the sexiest person who you've ever met. And, and they have a twin. <laughs> And they're being, like, weirdly incestuous with one another. There's no moment where you're like, ah, I think I'm going to just back out the door on this. He doesn't really understand that they are beyond, like, anything beyond just, like, what one would call maybe very close until <laughs> the moment where he sees them naked together. And by then mm -hmm. he's already, like, asleep together. He's already bought in by that point. He's already living there. 
we all know it's a pain in the ass to move. You've got <laughs> suitcases and that you have to go back to the ho- like the hostel and explain. I fell in with these weird twins. No, you're you're in. You're in for the long haul by this point. Plus, will they let you leave now that you've seen them naked together, or do knives come out and it's actually a horror movie and you just never knew? Well, I I think there's also a kind of like a, a funny thing about this film, and certainly to remember kind of like when I first w- watched it and stuff. And there's a degree to which you're like. Uh, yeah, maybe this is just what French people are like as well. <laughs> For me, I was like, mm, feelings, they're not really related, though. This is a movie. Okay, <laughs> and have the feelings. Feelings, okay. <laughs> but it's it's funny, actually. So um, my own other kind of like slight dreamers adjacent story was uh, when I was in the Dordogne for a summer with a French family. Uh, and this was actually when I was 17 years old. Um and I had gone there to try and improve my French. And there were very few kids my own age like around for most of it. And then there was this sort of like one kind of like a well, couple of days when the guy's daughter came along and then the his brother's children all came along. And I remember being in a room, we were watching some kind of film uh, in this old French chateau. And um, this sort of like seventeen-year-old uh, French girl kind of starts sort of going, oh, "I'm a little bit tense. I need a massage." And uh, she sort of looked. You at fucking her. idiot! No, no, no. I... <laughs> and she looked at her cousin, and her cousin oh. was like, "Okay." Very different story than what I thought. And um, and then when we we're watching this movie, she's like slewed off her blouse. And um, and he's just sort of, uh, you know, got some kind of like essential oils and he's just there kind of massaging her back. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm in the dreamers right now. <laughs> French boys just carry oils around with them everywhere just I'm, in case. <laughs> I guess so. I really think you missed your opportunity there. She, I, I feel like in various awkward situations, I've been that girl. And then you're like, oh, so it's just like my buddy who's just going to massage like, okay, fucking Chris, you just sit there and watch your movie. I'll let my cousin massage me. <laughs> I watched the movie. I, <laughs> I think it was Titanic. But, like, I, I was just thinking, I guess this is just how, how the French live. And um, I, 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 they're, I they're like rabbits. They'll fuck yeah. anything. They, they have no concept of familial uh, mores. <laughs> <laughs> now I have lived here, I can say this. I, this is not true. <laughs> Um, it's just the show that they put on for visiting English adolescents. <laughs> to get them to move here, pay their taxes, and write books about their food. <laughs> Precisely. It's a long con. It's a long con. <laughs> um, so I was also going to like um, just say a few more things about the movie, though, as well. is So that it, it actually started life um, as a novel. Um, yes, The Holy Innocence. Yes, by a guy called uh, Gilbert Adair. I knew you were going to do that because I made the same mistake when I first read it. It's Gilbert. He's He's English. (laughs) (laughs) So I was looking for the French version of this book, and you're like, there is no French version, you fucking idiot. (laughs) I just uh, francophone all of these names now. His name was Christophe uh, Nouaz. To be honest, if my name was Gilbert, I think I would go by Gilbert. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Got to drop that L. So he wrote this. Uh, he wrote this book, um, and then he then wrote the screenplay for the film. Although um, apparently the book, um, it's 
it's a lot more of a menage a trois in the book. That yeah, there's a lot more uh, homosexual sex yeah. within it, which is uh, very frustrating to me that they had to cut that to make it palatable for Americans, obviously. Yeah, well, Bertolucci apparently said... Uh, oh, what, he did felt, he really? He, he No, he said that he just felt that the homosexual stuff was just too much. Oh, wow. He's <laughs> <laughs> like... He's like, okay, twins, you're done fucking each other. I'm going to cut this next scene with the men. That's That would be crossing a line. Well, yeah, and this is another question that I wanted to ask, is that, like, it's kind of mad that he would decide that incest is fine and homosexuality is, is not okay. I mean, arguably, I felt watching the film that the incest is, is kind of an unnecessary addition to it. And what do you think about the incestuous... Like relationship, but you could say it's in- integral to the movie. But yeah, I, I think thematically it is uh, like uh, implying that the French intelligentsia at the time was kind of in this masturbatory phase of where everybody's just responding to thoughts within this own bubble, right? So, like, so French intelligentsia in the 1960s is incestuous. And then you also have this outside, you know, influence of the American movies that for the first time are being taken seriously as an art form rather than just as commerce, you know, coming in and this being very sexy to go, oh, well, they can also be, you know, they can be both uh, an academic subject, but also just an object of pleasure, you know, the way that Michael Pitt is. It's like he's there as a student, but he's also having a sexual education. The sexual education takes over, which I think, you know, when you think to what happened to American films and, you know, then you get Jurassic Park and a bunch of Marvel movies, maybe the pleasure <laughs> did take over just a little There's nothing wrong with Jurassic Park. <laughs> but the point being that it's very important, actually, that they're twins and that they're... uh fucking each other, I, I think, thematically. It's also important to note that, yeah, this is also an Englishman who's from neither of these cultures mm. writing this book. I I don't know exactly what the point of this is, but I found it fascinating, which is that after the movie came out and he'd done the screenplay, he rewrote the book as The Dreamers. Oh, and right. now it's, it's very, very expensive to buy a copy of The Holy Innocence. Mm. You can't find it on French Amazon, or at least I couldn't. Uh, in on American Amazon, uh, like a later edition of it from before the movie, but you know after the first printing is seventy five bucks. A first edition is like one hundred and fifty to start with. Wow. So uh, yeah, these uh, there's a group of fans out there, and I hope you're listening because I've got thoughts. <laughs> um, okay, so <clears throat> to to continue to talk about like the uh, around the movie then, so. Um, Bertolucci had wanted to direct a film set in the period of May 68 uh, already and he had he wasn't there for May 68 but he had a lot of friends who were there and so he had been wanting to do this so while it's not his own experience which is portrayed in the book it's very much related to the politics that he was very closely involved with and certainly that 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 love of film and when asked about kind of what he was hoping for the film to do because obviously you know time had moved on a lot from May 68 he said that he felt that any protests which were going on now lacked the or in 2003 even lacked the hope that people had uh in May 68 behind the protests that they had 
And I think it would be worth uh, saying a couple of things, which is that in 2003, you're only 35 years removed from, 36 years removed from the 68 protests. So when I came here in 2006, among the adults that I knew here, the French adults, this was still very much a thing. One of them, one of their building codes to enter was even 1968. <laughs> it's actually one of those things that I've often thought about in Paris as to what the most common building codes are. <laughs> Look, um, tip, hot tip, try 1968 for the older buildings. Also 1789, is it? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, seventeen eighty nine. It's like it's accepted. Everybody, nobody at this point is like, ah, the revolution. What a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas there still are people who were just like sixty eight. I don't know. It went a little far. I've been to two buildings in the last uh, two years, which have seventeen eighty nine as their uh, building code. Ugh, basic, <laughs> basic bitch buildings. <laughs> Those are the Taylor Swift of buildings, and I love Taylor Swift, <laughs> so I don't know what I mean by that. Um, <laughs> Do you think it's a particularly hopeful movie? I, I found it quite cynical, actually, when I was watching it, about this idea of change and people's, well, the youth's relationship with political movements. Mm. Well, there is, first of all, nothing younger than calling people youths. So, <laughs> well done. Um, yeah, but you know what? The ending the ending saves it from total cynicism because it is about these dreamers who have to wake up, who have to go from the world of images inside their apartment and to affect real change or at least to attempt to in the real world. So you're mm-hmm. passing from this world of absolute, just ineffable, intangible images to a world in which you're throwing Molotov cocktails. So you're on the side of uh, Theo and Isabel, and so it's actually a, it's like a celebration of like, I, this this is great. I feel that Rachel has just got this movie in a kind of like a, a far deeper way than I. Have. I've been thinking about this movie for twenty years, <laughs> and you have no idea of my delight that somebody's asking me about it. So yeah, the when I finished watching it, I was like, I was on the side of Matthew for like backing down and wanting to go into the dream and um, and rejecting violence. But actually, in some ways, this is it's celebrating French culture that ultimately they do tend to do something about stuff instead of just like dwelling on the um, yeah. on the fantasy. Well, I think it's interesting the way that you phrase that choose violence because mm. what they're really doing. I, I, that's kind of how it's phrased in the argument at the end of the movie, which is... I mean... Yes, but it's violence against authority. Yeah. And that's really important because the authority... The, it's also embodied in the, par- the figures of the parents who just don't understand the urges and the desires and the dreams mm. of their children, of this younger generation. But, but, but yeah, I think, I think the point is that they're, they're, they're taking responsibility. They're taking... They're becoming the actors. They're becoming the determinants of their own lives. And they're going, you know, even if this protest fails, no matter what the outcome is, you know, we have to do something other than just sit here reacting to images from other cultures and other ages. This is our age. And fuck the image. It's the action. And Michael Pitt is... I can't stop calling him that. The character, Matthew, mm. is sitting there going, and you really do feel it with him when he loses them in the crowd. Yeah. You're, I didn't want him to, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm imagining like a thruple, you know, and they're 50 years old in the 90s. Like, happy to, what was I thinking the ending was going to be? Well, I'm on his side. <laughs> I mean, I, I, 
I don't believe in throwing Molotov cocktails at the police and stuff. I So the way that I saw it was that, and I think that, dare I say, I think that you're right. I mean, in terms of certainly Bertolucci's intentions for the film, given what I've read about what he said about it. But to me, like, the uh, protest in the movie is just another aesthetic which people are buying into, which... You know, I mean, when you get that with, like, inside the apartment, as well as there being this decayed aristocracy thing, you've got, like, a lot of these images of Chairman Mao and the kind of, like, there's a a, a lamp of Chairman Mao and, like, this sort of, like, almost empty parroting of Maoist philosophy. Absolutely empty um, parroting because they're living, they, they yeah. have a fair amount of money. Yeah. And it's like, if you're really Maoist, you know there are things you could do with that money. In terms of the aesthetics of protest and that as an ideal... Um, to think about kind of what's going on in Paris at the moment is that while, yeah, the the protests are very real and about real issues, um, you're still getting like so many people out in the streets who are just using it for their Instagram or their TikTok or kind of like, and I have a, a friend of mine was just sort of like showing me like funny images from oh. the protests the other day as a kind of proof of going there. And I think that there is this degree in which like protest is fun and a festival and you know and even kind of like feeling passionate about a cause is similar to feeling passionate about a movie Um, i will say that when i came here in 2006 and it was a semester of protests so uh i apologize to my parents who paid my tuition in america for me to come here and protest things i didn't understand but I remember we were sitting at a cafe near the Sorbonne once when our classes had been cancelled because the students had barricaded uh, the doors of the Sorbonne, which was the most romantic thing. And again, I had seen the dream. I was going to say, I mean, protest is also sexy. Like, <laughs> Well, and at this point, we we smell something like really sharp and and, and we're looking at each other and going, what? If? And all of a sudden somebody goes... That's tear gas. And I go, oh my God, come on. And we just start running into it. We're the only ones running into it because we want to know what it feels like to have been tear gassed because we're 20 years old and like, and everybody else is running away because nobody wants to be tear gassed actually, unless you're a fucking American idiot. I mean, I was tear gassed last week. It's, um... oh man. And I had the excuse of being 20. <laughs> I mean, I was just that. I was just checking it out. Like, I mean, I think as a lot of people do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I think any time that you're, that somebody feels passionate about anything, about a cause, about a person, the, these are what spawn the, the genres of literature and film that we're so passionate about. There are war stories. There are romances. You know, there, there are these things that there are these uh, stories. This is a story that is so clever because it's actually about structural power relations and, you know, conflict between generations. And on some level, it's also just about twins fucking. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, you know what? You're going to get everybody into the cinema. You want to make a lot of money on a movie? Good job. <laughs> it's the elevator pitch. It's about structural relations and twins fucking. Dubert, I hope you're a millionaire. <laughs> And now it's time for our favorite segment, Marry, Fuck, Kill, where we 
apply the classic slumber party game to three people or entities from our love story this week. This week, we're going to take a turn. So Chris, take it away. Yeah. So like, look, obviously the thing to do for this week would have been to ask you about the characters in this movie. And sidebar, Mary Isabel, fuck Matthew, kill Theo. In case you were wondering. <laughs> I think we can both agree on that. But yeah, because because that would be such an easy question to answer, evidently. I thought we could, you know, going off what we've already talked about when we were talking about door codes earlier on, the famous dates which are used for door codes all over Paris. Okay, so the potential door codes in Paris, and, you know, the last one, maybe it will be a door code in the future. Who knows? So they are. Look, lose the door code part. (laughs) We're talking about years. I think that's what Chris is getting at. What years would we marry fucking kill? 1968, 1789, or 2023? Oh, man, you got me right in the gut with those. Okay, it's a really hard choice for me because honestly, I look great in a mini skirt. I know how to iron my hair. White lipstick, not a bad look for me. The 60s would have been my era. But unsustainable. You get very tired at Beatles concerts. (laughs) You get very tired at protests. I can't wear my heels running through the cobblestone streets of Paris. And sneakers for women have not been invented yet. So So you're tilting towards uh, 1789 then, I'm feeling like. Look, it's classic. 1789 is your classic banker slash consultant husband. You know, it's like the... (laughs) Yeah, the French Revolution is your classic banker slash consultant husband. We've accepted that this has happened. (laughs) (laughs) We are going, okay, this is the classic revolution on which all other revolutions are based. This is the man that we're fighting against. Okay, I feel like, yeah, I get my, you know, six-bedroom, dilapidated, whatever, with 1789. So to be clear, we're characterizing 1789, the French Revolution, as the man. Yeah. Right, okay, yeah, fine. Storming of the Bastille, Camille Desmoulins. It's been established. Robespierre. Yeah. It's like you're talking about the American Revolution, and you're like, oh, because... Because George Washington is so established, and it's like, yeah, he is. <laughs> like, yeah, he was. He was a like total maverick general at the time that the British were like, he's not a general, he's just some guy, you know. And he's riding off with his wooden teeth, being like, "See you later, Martha." And you know, basically, yeah. He, they, it's been so long that they've turned from these really like uh, these really. It's no. It's no longer revolutionary. It's just become mainstream. That's it. Uh, I'll definitely fuck 1968. Look, for me, I would live with 1968. I would have children with 1968. I'm not going to marry 1968 because 1968 doesn't believe in marriage. 1968 is like, we can be paxed, which is the French version of the civil union. No, marriage is a bourgeois institution and I'm not going to take you that way. And it's like, okay, but I do want you to commit and 
1968 isn't answering some fucking text messages. They're not picking up the phone. I'm going absolutely batty. Uh, no, we're just going to have like a nice little sexual relationship, uh, perhaps for hours, perhaps for years, but it lasts and I'm wearing some white go-go boots and I am looking excellent. 2023, bring on 2024. I want this year over. It's been a year. I'm tired. I want to sleep. I haven't slept enough this year. I've like, there's, there's been a lot of personal stuff. It's been cold so far. We're only up to April. Uh, there's been very little sun. There also hasn't been snow. I will take no sun if there's snow. Now it's just a diatribe on the weather. But <laughs> Forgetting the revolution and the, the protests in the streets. The protests in the streets right now. Look, now they're by my house, which was actually built before the revolution and then revolution-proofed. I live, don't get mad at me, I do live in the servants building behind the fancy building, but uh, what that means is that not only do you have to get over the gate to come invade me, you then have to get through the fancy building and all of its door codes, through another courtyard, and then like climb up several flights of stairs. I'm revolution proof, and yet I still fucking hate 2023. I am revolution proof by living in a much poorer district, like so I am. <laughs> well, look, we're not here to brag. <laughs> oh, my trash is collected. <laughs> that's true. So that's so that's where I, I end up, and it, I didn't mean for it to be chronological next necessarily, but it is, and I really, I, I do feel anybody who knows me more than superficially understands that about me. That uh, deep in my heart, I am, you know, age of enlightenment. Fucking a 60s, a 60s student movement and very indifferent about whether today lives or dies. I'm hopeful for the future. Gen Z, I believe the children are our future. I will treat you well and help you lead the way. And you don't even know that reference because you're babies. Maybe it's time to let Chris talk. 1968 is obviously the sexiest year, without obviously. a doubt. Like, there's no doubt about that. I think that, like, as a kind of counter to your point, I think like because it's so far in the past, and this is going to sound lame, but um, we forget how revolutionary seventeen eighty nine was. Like that was properly radical. In a, um... I'm, I'm gagging here in the corner. I'm so sorry, you guys. The revol- Chris's point was that the revolution was revolutionary. Continue, Chris. <laughs> I'm just saying that for a long time, the sexiest revolution would have been the 1789 revolution. And I think for that reason, just to find out something a little bit about kind of like what I, I might not know already, like I'm I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to fuck the 1789 revolution. Okay. I can see how like the terror would be sexy. Not the terror. I'm not fucking the terror. This is before the terror. This is, this is the storming of the Bastille. This you, is... you named Robespierre, who was the key figure of the terror. This is enough. We need you back because again, we, every conversation so far has just evolved into politics. <laughs> 
but yeah, no, this is this is the year of like of of of, re- of genuine hope of the idea of getting rid of uh, monarchies and and a completely new way of thinking of that's true. It, oh, I forgot we were talking about the actual year instead of the revolution more generally, which is a much larger period. And seventeen eighty eighty nine is debates and tennis courts and you know yeah yeah, and it's it's a kind of it's a belief in the future which I think that. 1968 could barely hold a candle to in terms of the radicalness of 1789. And so I'm saying, I want to know what that's like between the sheets. But you're not going to marry it, despite all of the complexities. No, I'm not going to marry it because, and this could be also controversial, out of those two very sexy years, I'm actually going to marry 2020. Chris has killed me again. And I, I am marrying this year out of a dedication to the belief in the future. No, I'm getting, I'm cutting us off. That was this week in Paris. I, I want to take Bertolucci's advice from the film, which is to have more hope and more faith in, you know, and I think we, we, we you know, the fact is I'm already in an arranged marriage with 2023. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I thought Chris was revealing a secret about his actual marriage and I had a big reaction. <laughs> Um, right, we're all in arranged marriages with 2023. It doesn't mean that we couldn't fantasize about other <laughs> scenarios. 2023 in America, Joe Biden's president. You've got what the fuck over in England. What's happening there? Yeah, but I think it's only through dedication to this year and the place that we're in that anything is ever going to get better. And so I don't believe in this idea of killing it and throwing it out. I think it needs to be... Hallmark, Chris is available for hire. (laughs) Should you be looking for card writers? (laughs) Yeah, so sorry, but um, ciao... 1968, which is a process of elimination, even though I suppose if I could have lived through any of them, I would have wanted to live through that one. Just the 1789 for the sheer bombast of it. 2023, because I feel that it's 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 the moral choice. And 1968, I'm sorry, just as, as I say, process of elimination. <laughs> <laughs>